Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. You know, I've been looking forward to, to getting back, um, on the one hand, to continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark, which we began a, a year ago this week. First uh, of October, we started going through Mark's Gospel. And believe me, even though it's been four months away, you know, getting back here and, uh, and beginning this, the four months doesn't make it any easier, and that's because we're going to be looking at a tough teaching today. And I've had four months that I've been mulling over this. Man, God, that's your timing. But, you know, why do we start with, you know, with this teaching on, on, on the, the first Sunday back after, after the summer? But God's timing is always perfect. Amen. As we preach through his word, we, we, we have to take things as, as they come. The topic that we've been looking at today is one that's touched many, many lives. There's probably not a life uh, in, this, in this room that hasn't been touched by divorce. And it's, it's one that, you know, we would love to be able to say what we want to say about the subject, but we can't do that. We have to teach what God's Word says about the subject. We've gone through nine chapters, nine chapters going page by page and verse by verse, and we've been looking at, at what happened around the little Sea of Galilee there in the Holy Land, what took place surrounding this, this man called Jesus. Uh, this man that, you know, our, our dating system, you know, our dating system points to him. It's been 2,022 years since Jesus was on the face of the earth, walking the earth, and he split time, all things be, before him as B.C. or before Christ, all things after him as Anno Domini or in the year of our Lord. We've been looking at Mark's account, trying to figure out, and we're going to be figuring out even more in the, in the coming months, you know, what happened there uh, inside the walls of Jerusalem, what happened on that afternoon uh, when Jesus went to the cross, and three days later, the empty tomb, uh, this event that, that, that split humanity as we know it. We've been looking at this man and his teaching, and this guy whose very birth gives us a, our greatest holiday, a holiday that's, that's, that's celebrated even by those that aren't necessarily religious, and whose, depth, whose death we observe and we commemorate as we look at the empty tomb, we cannot get his birth and his death all off of our calendar. And when it comes to teaching, we, we have to teach what he said, not what we want to, as I said. The tension has been building in, the, in Mark's gospel. Then the opposition hates Jesus. The spiritual leadership hates him. The crowd is split over what do you do with this guy? And by chapter 10, there's already a price on his head. They want to get rid of him. And they found the absolutely perfect trap, and it revolves around this topic of divorce and, by extension, marriage. Because you can't talk about divorce without talking about marriage. So we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. It says there, it says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he what? He taught them. Now, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 a year ago, we hit this pretty hard. We said over and over and over again, I realize some people's memories aren't as good as others, but we, we, we taught that Jesus' main goal was what? 
to teach, to teach. Someone's paying attention there in the back. To teach. Jesus taught. Yes, he did many miracles. He helped people. His, his compassion came out for folks when he saw the brokenness of humanity. But his main goal was not to come and, and, and fix your life. His main goal was to come and teach you how to change your life. How to have a relationship with the Father. How to follow him and follow his teachings. And when we approach God just trying to get a blessing, as people did in that day, and as people in our day, many people still do, when we come just for the blessing, we're going against the main goal of Jesus. Because we follow a God whose main goal is to teach. Then our main goal should be to what? To learn. To learn. To listen and to learn. And how many of our prayers, how many of our prayers start off this way? God, give me. God, give me. But if you want to encounter the heart of God, start praying, God, teach me. God, teach me. Teach me what you want to teach me in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of all the stuff, all the gunk, all the ugliness that goes on in life. What do you want to teach me in this? God, instead of, instead of getting rid of my boss who's a jerk, teach me how it is to work with jerks. God, instead of getting rid of the neighbor who, who drives me nuts, teach me what you want to teach me and how to deal with this situation and how I can be a good neighbor to that person. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. And here it comes in verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus, what say ye about divorce? And here's why it's the perfect test, why it's the perfect trap. They've crossed from the far side. They've come down out of Galilee. They've crossed from the far side down through past Perea there, and they're coming and entering into Jericho and down towards Jerusalem. And they've come through here, and they're, they're, they're in this area of Judea who, that is still, um, still managed for the Roman government by King Herod. And this is the area, we're in chapter 10 now, but this is the area we're back in chapter 6. I realize it's a long time ago, but if you go back and read it, it might refresh your memory. Back in chapter 6, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, spoke against Herod because Herod had married his brother's wife. John the Baptist said, Herod, you can't do that. You can't marry your brother's wife, even if you're more powerful than your brother, even though if you are a king and, and he's not, it's, it's not a good reason to take your brother's wife as your own. And you remember what happened in chapter 6 to John? He lost his head, literally. At a dinner party, Herod had made a promise and promised too quickly, probably in a drunken state, and he ended up uh, being put on the spot in front of his guests, and he had John killed, had his head brought, had John's head brought to him on a silver platter. And so they're in this area where this had happened, and, and they're saying, okay, so Jesus, what do you say about divorce? You want to speak against that? Remember John the Baptist? What do you want to say, Jesus? And it, and it wasn't just trying to get the Roman government and Herod against Jesus. They were trying to get the populace against Jesus. Because the Jewish teaching on divorce centered on a passage in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 24, which said this in verse 1. It says, If a man marries a woman... 
who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her and sends her from his house. That's how that, that passage starts. We're going to go on with it in a couple minutes. But there were two major schools of thought amongst the Jews at this time. One was taught by the rabbi Hillel, and another was taught by the rabbi Shami. And I've got their names there in your life notes so you can see them if you're wondering how to spell them. Rabbi Hillel is the more liberal of the two, and Rabbi Shami is the, is, is, is the more conservative concerning divorce. And Hillel said that something indecent could mean anything at all. If your wife burns the toast, if the smoke alarm is, is her timer on the oven, then that's, then that's okay to, to, to divorce your wife for that. If you don't like the quality of her cooking, if she, if she lets her hair down in public and you don't like that, if she wears a dress that you don't like, you can divorce her. If you consider her annoying, you can divorce her. If she makes a negative comment about your mother, her mother-in-law, you can divorce her. If you happen to find someone that you consider more attractive, you can divorce her. That's what Rabbi Hillel said. So Rabbi Hillel believed in easy divorce for any and every reason and his was actually the popular view of the day. It was the prevailing view of the day, which is why the Pharisees were asking Jesus, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any and every cause? All you got to do, they said, was just write, a, just write a certificate, just take any scrap piece of paper, write down why you're divorcing it, give it to her, and just send her away. You don't need a lawyer. You don't need a waiting period. You don't need to pay any legal fees. All you have to do is hand it to her, send her off. I mean, this is the popular view because divorce could be done for practically any reason. Now, as I said, Rabbi Shammai was a bit different. He was more conservative with regard to this. He believed that the indecency that was spoken of here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 required some form of marital impropriety. Marital impropriety. In other words, you couldn't just divorce your wife because you didn't like her cooking, because you burnt the toast. It had to be something that she did that was, that was maritally unacceptable. Like maybe she talked to too many men in, in, in public. So if it was something maritally improper, Shammai said it was acceptable for you put, to put your wife away to, to divorce her. Now, by the way, neither one of these rabbis were talking about the issue of adultery. Because in that day, there was very clear biblical instruction what you did if your wife sexually cheated on you. She died. And in Leviticus 20, it said, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both, and, and this is something that's, that's interesting that, to, to see, both the, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now, they were kind of selective in how they, in how they, uh, how they administered this, but Incidentally, in the day of the Romans, when the Romans were um, occupying Jerusalem and, and, and Israel at this time, the, the Jews weren't allowed to actually carry this out. They were not out there killing all adulterers, so instead they were, they were, they were uh, divorcing their adulterous spouses. And in this context of this conservative and liberal debate, the Pharisees have asked Jesus this, this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They already know the, the, what Jesus is going to say, at least they think they do, because they know that Jesus would, would, would fall under the conservative side here. Earlier in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32, he's already expressed his views on divorce and, and what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He says there, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits 
adultery. So Jesus holds a conservative, what's, what's seen as a conservative view on divorce. But what we're really going to see in a few minutes is what he really holds is a very high view of marriage. He holds a high view of marriage. And you can see the Pharisees here trying to set him up. They're trying to get him to, to lose his popularity with the people. They're trying to get him to, to express his conservative views on divorce in this ultra-liberal society. And they're trying to get him to, to, to tick off Herod and the, and, the, and the Romans so that maybe they'll do their, maybe they, they will do their dirty work for them. Maybe the people will turn on him. Maybe the government will turn on him. So you can see how their political scheming is going on here. And Jesus responds to this in, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. He asks them, he said, what did Moses command you? They said, well, um, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, did Moses command them? No, he permitted them. He, Moses didn't command that they had to get a divorce. He permitted a man to divorce his wife. He never commanded a man to divorce his wife. Jesus then replies, he says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. The reason Moses permitted divorce was because of the sinfulness. Anytime the Bible talks about a, a hardened heart, it's talking about a heart that is not like the heart of God. It's talking about a heart that, that's against the ways of God. And he says, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses wrote this for you. Basically, what he's saying is that, that, that divorce is a concession. It's a concession to the hardness of your heart to regulate sin. It was not God's original will for men and women's relationships. It was concession when it became the lesser of two evils, so to say. Now, I want to point out to you in, De in Deuteronomy 24, the Pharisees are looking at the very, the very front of the verse, and they're doing, they're doing what a lot of people still do. They're picking they're, they're proof texting. They're picking and choosing what they want to teach and what they want to say to prove their point. They're, they're saying, you know, well, this is okay. Anything indecent. This is, what we, this is what we want here. This is going to be a green light for a divorce. And Jesus is going to say, you've got to look at the whole context here. It's not to me, meant to be a green light to divorce your wives. It's supposed to be a red light to stop sinful men from hurting their wives. He's basically saying you're reading it the wrong way here. And so let's look at the full unit of thought here in, in verses 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy 24. It says there, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who has divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. What was going on here is women were considered property in this, in this, in this, uh, in the way that things were back then. This economy, women were considered property. And the men had rights that the women did not have. And these first four verses in Deuteronomy are, are designed not to encourage divorce, but to put regulations on, on divorce. And there's some reasons for that. There's, there's three things. I've got them in your life notes. They're not going to be on the screen, just to warn you. So you might want to write these down there, fill in those blanks. The first thing that they're trying to do here is to, is to discourage hasty divorce. They're trying to discourage hasty divorce by making the man explain the reason for the divorce. Not just, 
whim, whimsical or willy-nilly. It's, it's, it, you got to consider what's going on here. Secondly, these verses provided the woman with a certificate of divorce to protect her dignity and to protect her from interference from a former spouse. Because if, you, if, she had, um, if she had married and been divorced from a man, then she married another man, the previous first man would, would come in and say, well, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I still have claim on her. Because again, it's kind of like a piece of land. When you buy a, a piece of real estate, you have to go through this thing called a title search. You familiar with that? And the title search is to go through and make sure that no one else has claim on that land. To make sure that, that all, the prop, they, all the past transactions have been done properly so that you can't be in your house 10 years and someone else come back and say, wait a minute, this wasn't sold properly back you know, 10 years ago. Now you have to vacate your home. Well, the same way of looking at this, this is how they were looking at women as they looked at women as, as chattel or as property. You would have men come back and lay claim to women. And, and, the, and the Bible's trying to protect women so this could not, could not happen. And number three, it made it impossible for a former spouse to remarry his former wife. And this discouraged thoughtless divorce. Discouraged thoughtless divorce. Oh, I want to be married to you this week. I don't want to be married to you next week. You know, back and forth like that. So if a man divorces his wife until she is remarried, he can keep working on that relationship. And, and I've known people that people that did get back together after they've been divorced and they've rebuilt their, rebuilt their marriage after divorce. But once she marries another man, then she can't, she can't marry the first husband again. So it discourages thoughtless divorce, it discourages hasty divorce, and it protects women. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, that is why this commandment is there. The reason the provisions were put in place is not because God desires divorce, but because of the sinful hearts of men who cause relationships to degenerate into divorce. You want to know what God really thinks of divorce? You look in Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, 16. There God says, I hate divorce. He says, I hate. He says it shouldn't be treated as a casual thing because divorce is always a tragic and it's always a painful thing as we're going to look at here in a minute. Now, as we continue, Jesus sort of goes back. You know, they're camping out in Deuteronomy. Well, Jesus is going to go even further back in time to the book of Genesis, to the beginning. And he's going to explain the, the danger of divorce by explaining the permanence of marriage. He says in verse 6, he says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. And we go down a rabbit trail with that, but... God made them male and female, talking about marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. So what's happening is these Pharisees are using Deuteronomy 24, this something indecent phrase, to be a rationale, a rationale for divorcing their wives. And Jesus, in, in the way that argumentation was done amongst the rabbis then, if you could go back and find an earlier precedent, if you could find an earlier precedent in Scripture, then you could hold the argument, the theological debate. So Jesus goes even further back than Deuteronomy. He goes all the way back to Genesis, the book of beginnings. Not the first chapter, but he goes to the second chapter. Because you didn't have man and woman in the first chapter. You had man and woman together in the second chapter. And so he goes all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning here. And, and you've got Adam, you've got Eve, you've got God officiating the wedding. And he draws some points there about the way marriage is supposed to be. 
He's saying, if you worry about divorce, what you need to understand is what God was trying to teach about marriage, what marriage is supposed to be. The first thing is marriage is supposed to be a permanent bond. Marriage is supposed to be a permanent bond. You see, men, the man and the woman were made for one another, and God officiated the, the marriage with, with one another. God made them to be together, and God made Adam and Eve to stay together. And in this first marriage, God set the pattern for all subsequent marriages. God did make Eve and Sally and Greta and say, okay, Adam, you can spend 20 years with this one, then trade her in and go to the second one and then go to the third. That's not what God did there. He created Adam and Eve, and he, and he created them to have a permanent relationship as husband and wife. He created them to have a lifelong relationship, which is why this attitude of casual divorce that was in Jesus' day, and I dare say is even more rampant in our day, is so wrong. And it's why divorce produces so much pain. Because when you break a marriage, you're breaking a relationship that was designed by God to, to last a lifetime. The next reason why divorce is so painful is related to this is because marriage makes a new family. Marriage makes a new family. You see, all other relational bonds come after your relationship to your spouse, even your parents. In Genesis, it said that a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will be united to his wife. And marriage creates this new bond, a new household, a new family unit. Such a significant bond exists between a husband and wife that he leaves his parents. In fact, his loyalty to his wife is to be higher than his loyalty even to his own parents. And this is one of the things that when I do premarital counseling, especially with younger people, I try to stress with them, try to help them to understand. Because I've seen so many times, so many times when people get married and they, they're, they're supposed to leave and cleave, as we say. <clears throat> they're supposed to leave and cleave, but they don't. They leave, but they keep one foot back in mommy and daddy's house, and, and, or she might keep a, a foot back in mommy and daddy's house, and they don't leave their parents to become one flesh together, and it causes significant problems, particularly amongst newlyweds and, and, and young people. Marriage creates a new bond, a significant bond. So marriage creates this family relationship, and when marriages break apart, it's painful because you're breaking a bond, a, a family bond, a bond that was intended to be even stronger than the bond that one would have with their biological parents. Number three, Jesus points out that marriage turns two people into one. This is what I call God math. In marriage, one plus one equals one. Yeah, you got it. One plus one equals one. And this is not just talking about the issue of sexual intimacy. This is talking about practical life between two people when they're married. A husband and wife literally become knit together. As they build their life, as they do life together, they become knit together. They know exactly how the other person is, is, is thinking, even though they may not always like the way the other person is thinking. They have to work that out, and that's, that's part of the give and take of marriage. They know how the other person thinks, how they live. They know everything about them because they're connected to this person as one flesh. And you cannot, you cannot tear apart two people to become one without some incredibly devastating consequences. And number four, in marriage, God seals a couple together. He seals a couple together. Jesus sums it up there in verse 9. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When marriage takes place, God seals the couple. And, and the, the Greek term that's used here is literally, it's, it's the idea of a yoke. 
If you're familiar with a yoke from farming days, pictures you have two oxen and the owner of the oxen puts a yoke on them. Well, the, the oxen, when they have that yoke on them, they need to work together. They can, they can fight amongst each other and pull one way, pull the other way, but they're not going to get a lot of stuff done. And the similar picture here that Jesus is using here is that, you know, when you're, when you're yoked with someone in marriage, you have to work together and you can be far more productive, yoked together, just as a team of oxen can, than you can if you're trying to do things on your own. And that's what marriage is like. Couples that work together can do far more than they could ever do individually. But God is the one doing the yoking. God is the one who, who does the joining, bringing them together as one. And God is the one who created the institution of marriage, who seals that institution of marriage. And men should be careful not to try and tear apart something that God has created, that God has made. Nor, may I add, should, should, should men, whether it be governments or whatever, try to redefine marriage. God has defined marriage, pure and simple. He's defined it for, for good. So we've seen that divorce should never be considered a casual thing because God created the institution of marriage by nature to be permanent and, by, and the bond by nature to be extremely powerful. Now, continuing on at verses 11 and 12, Jesus says that those who divorce and remarry commit adultery. It says, and when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, Jesus is talking here about perfection, about God's perfect will. Now, does God's perfect will always happen? No. There's this thing in chapter 3 that came in, chapter 3 of Genesis, this little three-word thing called sin. Okay, but Jesus is talking here about God's, God's highest goal for, for men and women. The debate that, that Jesus had with the Pharisees seems to be over. Jesus has won the debate by going back and appealing to Genesis rather than Deuteronomy. And they're in the house, it says. Mark says they're in a house at this point. And any time you're in Mark's gospel, and he says that, that Jesus is in the house with the disciples, He's giving supplementary teaching. He's giving additional teaching that Jesus did not give to the hoi polloi, to the, the people at large there. So he's given, he's given additional teaching to these guys. And he's basically saying, whoever divorces their spouse and marries another, marriage, the marriage bond is so important that you can consider committing adultery. In other words, Rabbi Hillel, who said you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, is wrong, completely wrong. Even Rabbi Shammai, who said that you could divorce your wife to some type of marital impropriety, he's wrong as well, because marriage is intended for life. You cannot divorce one another. Now, the apostles, they're shocked at this. This high bar that Jesus is portraying for the, mar for the marital bond. If you go to Matthew, you can, see, you, you can see their reaction to this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And I think the missing component that, we're, that, that, that we have here as to what God intended and what Jesus is saying is that marriage itself, marriage itself is not something that should be entered into lightly. In my counseling experience the last 30, 40 years, I, I see people get married. They've known each other, you know, two weeks. And yeah, I've known some people who've known each other two weeks and got married. There may be some here in this room, and, and, and sometimes it works out for them. But I've seen so many young people in particular, and, and older people, jump into marriage 
without counting the cost, without understanding, outstanding about marriage. I've watched people over the years, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do more to research what it means to buy a new car. Uh, they'll know more about new cars. They'll know more about buying a house and stuff like that than they do about getting married. I used to do this on board ship uh, when I did indoctrination for sailors on, on my ships. I'd look around the room, you know, have 20 or 30 sailors in there, and I'd look for one that, that had a wedding ring on, and I would ask that individual, I'd say, uh, can I see your driver's license? And they'd hand me their driver's license. And I would ask them, I said, which took more effort and work, to get your driver's license, or I see that you're married, or to get your wedding license, your marriage license? And I, and I imagine it's probably the same with all of you. It was, it's much easier to get a wedding license, to get a marriage license, than it is to get a driver's license. But isn't marriage important? Isn't coming together and, and, and knowing how to communicate, knowing how to uh, handle conflict and, and things like that, knowing how to, how to bring your finances together, how to, how to work together and live together, how to have children, how to raise children. Isn't that just as, if not more important than driving a car down the freeway? But people don't want to do that. You know, I require premarital counseling before I marry a couple. I mean, I can't tell you how many couples I turned down, and I, I would offer, I'd say, okay, I'll do, the, I'll do the premarital counseling after the fact for you, but I'm not going to stand up there in a chapel or a church and make it all look pretty and, 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 and before God and all this stuff when you haven't sat down with me. And, I'm, and, and this was free. <laughs> I did it free. It, it would take eight sessions to do the premarital counseling. I'm offering my time to help get them on to a good start in marriage because marriage is important. My grandmother was married three or four times. We're not sure how many times. My mom was married, divorced at 22, with three boys to raise. You know, I know divorce is tough on people. And it's something that we need to not consider, not consider lightly. And marriage isn't something we should enter into lightly either. Here's one of the problems as I see it over the past 40, 50 years. In our society, where do we, where do we look to to get ideas about marriage? Our parents in the media. And unfortunately, neither in the past 50 years have done a very good job. Okay? If you look at the divorce rates in America, because we, we've become an easy, an easy divorce society. We don't take marriage, um, marriage um, seriously. We don't, we don't value marriage. We just think, well, if you don't like to get tired, you'll just trade it in for a new model, so to say. And so we look, we look at our parents. Our parents have modeled this. And so we don't know how to do it. Or we look at the media. You know, and I want you to think, when was the last time you saw a good marriage, a healthy marriage portrayed in a movie or on a television show? You know, we're watching a series right now. We're watching a series right now. I'm going to tell on us um, that, you know, it's a wholesome series set in Alberta, Canada and all this stuff. But you've got people in, in, the, in the show that are separated, sort of, and they're already dating other people and they're not even divorced yet. And they're already they're already dating other people. And I know that in our personal lives. I know, I know people who are barely separated from their, from their spouse, and they're already out there looking for another one. And it just, it just blows my mind, because inevitably what happens is they don't learn anything from the first, first go-around, and they have the same thing happen, and then the, you know what the definition of insanity is, doing the same thing over and over again with, without changing anything and expecting different results. Now, Jesus gave an exception, as I said, in, in, in Matthew 19.9, this exception clause as it's found in Matthew, it's not found in Mark, 
And uh, I've pointed out before that Mark is characteristically very short and often leaves out a lot of details, whereas Matthew in parallel situations, if you took Matthew and Mark's Gospels and put them side by side, Matthew explains things in more detail. He's much longer. He throws in extra, extra, uh, extra information. And in this case, that's what he, what he does as well. There in, in verse 9, it says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. In other words, if your spouse has been unfaithful to you, then it is legally allowable that divorce can take place. And that's what Jesus says in this context. But, but the challenge is that, that Matthew has this, Mark doesn't, neither does Luke. And I think that the, the reason that they leave it out is because the adultery example is kind of obvious to them. After all, it was originally t- uh, treated in that day so, so, um, so heavily that the death penalty was imposed. You know, now we, we hardly think twice about adultery, someone's cheating on their spouse today. And again, it's been portrayed to us through the media and other things. It's been normalized. So what about the issue of remarriage? Well, Jesus says you can divorce your spouse in the case of adultery, but does that mean you're allowed to remarry? And yes, he says, yes, remarriage is also included that. Folks, sometimes, and Lou and I have been married 42 42 years this past August. Most of you that are here that are married have been married longer than we have. You know, sometimes your marriage is going to be hard. Sometimes your marriage is going to seem unfulfilling. Sometimes you may meet somebody that seems more exciting. Sometimes you may think that a new spouse will be more fun. But as, uh, as, as one uh, counselor used to say, just remember the grass may look greener on the other side, but don't forget it still has to be cut. <laughs> there are incredible consequences of divorce. Devastating consequences because marriage was designed by God to be permanent. The bond of marriage is incredibly powerful. The only reason you want to hit that divorce button Jesus is saying here is in the case of adultery. Now, I would say this, um, this is me talking, not Jesus, the Bible here, but I would say I wouldn't hit the divorce button in case of of adultery unless it was persistent, unrepentant adultery. I have worked with couples. I've seen couples where adultery was involved. Affairs have happened on both sides, and they've been able to rebuild their marriage. They've been able to rebuild uh, through repentance and, and, and forgiveness. It's not easy. It's not easy rebuilding trust, but it is possible. Now, before we finish here, let's look and say, what else does the New Testament say about marriage? Because there is another passage that we have to consider if we're going to consider this in, in totality. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is talking about this issue. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say this, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He continues and says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, at the beginning of this passage, Paul says this phrase, He says, not I, 
You know, he says, I sit, and he says, I, not, not the Lord says this. And some people misunderstand that. They think that that means, well, okay, this passage is not inspired, so it's not important, and we shouldn't pay attention to it. And that's not what he's saying, or that's not what it means. What Paul is actually saying, he's saying, I can't quote verbatim here what Jesus might have said about this, but I will tell you this. And Paul is speaking here as an apostle of God. He's speaking someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So his words are true. His words are, do have effect here. And he's working, he's talking, he's writing this to a church in a place called Corinth. There was a very decadent, uh, evil place. Uh, it's a very pagan, pagan city. And in Corinth, there were a number of mixed marriages, and you had people that were in mixed marriages, and some folks were coming to the Lord, becoming Christians. And you would have one person in the marriage that was a spouse uh, that was Christian, and then you'd have another one who was not. And he says, if you find yourself in this situation, you as the Christian spouse should seek to stay in that relationship to be a good influence on your husband or to be a good influence on your wife. Don't, just because you, you become a Christian doesn't mean you divorce your unbelieving spouse is the bottom line here. You stay in the, you stay in the relationship. It'll, it'll bless your husband who's unbelieving. It'll bless your children. But if the situation comes where the unbeliever insists on leaving, let them do so, and you are free to remarry. So the Bible has two clear instances here when divorce is allowable. It's not commanded, but it's allowable. One is a case of adultery where Jesus talked about it, and the second is a case of what we would say abandonment where Paul talks about it. Now the question becomes, while these are the only two options that are clearly spelled out in Scripture, are there other scenarios? Are there other scenarios that may not be directly addressed in Scripture? And I would say that you need to, you need to be careful. Anytime you're applying Scripture, you need to be careful not to be overly legalistic, okay? Not, yes, God has standards, but did you ever notice this? Grace wins. Mercy wins. Mercy triumphs. Let me take a sidebar here and just for a minute um, address the, the issue of domestic abuse. Let me just say it straight up. Domestic abuse is unequivocally wrong. It's wrong. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's nothing in God's word that constrains a spouse, whether they be male or female, to remain in a dangerous or an abusive situation. And I've known of pastors that have told, told women in particular, no, you've got to stay there. You've got to stay there. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I had a counseling situation. Uh, you had a husband and wife. They both were in churches and were in the church. They, they claimed to be Christians, but, this, but the husband had a drinking problem. And he would come home at night. He would yell and scream at his wife, and oftentimes it would degenerate into physical abuse. And so he would strike her. The next morning, she'd be battered and, and bruised, and you know, he didn't remember a thing about what had happened. And she said, you've got to stop drinking. And unfortunately, that man chose the bottle over his bride. And after a while, she said, I need to separate from you for the sake of my life and the sake of my safety. And, and he continued to choose the bottle over his bride, and eventually it led to divorce. Now, Paul doesn't address that situation specifically. You, you could say that, okay, he abandoned her for, for, for alcohol or some, because he certainly chose that over, over his bride. But those situations that are out there like that, again, I would always encourage you, as your pastor, to err towards a side of grace. Remember, divorce is always the last option. It's always has a fall, because there is always a fallout. Marriage is designed to be permanent. The bond of marriage is powerful. Now let's summarize what we've looked at. The first is that God created marriage to be a what? 
a lifelong relationship, a lifelong relationship. Divorce may look like an easy answer, but it's always a costly and painful answer. You know, my father was an abusive alcoholic, and I know that my mother, she died about eight, nine years ago. My, my, my father died in 1970 due to his alcoholism at the age of 39. But I know, and my stepfather actually knows this too, my mother loved my daddy till the day she died. She, she still had a love and affection, affection for my daddy. She just couldn't live with him because of the stuff that was going on, how she was being hurt and how her three boys were being hurt. Divorce always, always has a cost. One thing, too, that I, my mom always taught me, and I, I, I use this in counseling a lot, and I thank mom for this, and you know, no one blame, would blame my mom for leaving my daddy, but um, my mom always said, you know, it's never just one-sided. My mom knew that you know, she owned some stuff in, in, in the breakup of the marriage. She never just said, oh, it's all, it's all your father's fault. It's all your daddy's fault. She never tried to get uh, my brothers and I to hate our father, despite the things that, the things that he had done. She taught us to, to, to love our father. So marriage is permanent. Marriage is powerful. Number two, there are times when divorce is permitted. While it's not God's ideal, Jesus permitted divorce in the case of adultery, and Paul permitted divorce in the case of an unbeliever's insistence on, living, on leaving. Now, in the cases where Scripture does not permit it, though, people do still choose divorce. You may be sitting there, you may be listening to me today, and I realize that, that, that many of you have gone through the hurt of a divorce, and maybe it wasn't for reasons of, uh, of infidelity or reasons of abandonment. What I want you to understand is that there's grace. Just as in everything else, there's grace. And we, the church, needs to res- we need to respond with truth and with grace. We must hold to the truth about marriage and when divorce is right and when divorce is wrong. But as Jesus followers, we must also be very quick to extend grace to those who have gone through the trauma, those who have gone through the relational breakdown of divorce. We must not treat divorce and adultery like it is an unforgivable sin. Jesus died on the cross to forgive all sin. All sin. And the scripture says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And if Jesus forgives great sin, as his church, we must too. What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.